Welcome back to another episode of People of Product. My name is George Brooks, and on today's episode, I had the pleasure to talk to Blake Reichenbach. Blake is a product manager at HubSpot and the owner of an online shop and community called Howdy Curiosity. I had a blast talking to Blake about um, really just the core principles of product management. I think the things that I really took away from this conversation was really thinking about those disciplines and those rhythms of checking in with people. Think about the spheres of influence you have as a product manager and ultimately getting down to the, the number one role of a product manager is to figure out how to serve your customer well, how to serve your customer better, how to make your customer love your product and your business. And I think that there are different ways that we think, talked about that is um, thinking about trust. How do we build trust with our teams? How do we build trust with our counterparts? How do we get access to our customer through building trust with the customer service department? Um, his story of going from being a, an English major and writer all the way through to now doing product management really tells the story of how a lot of the work that we do is just that, storytelling. So I think you're gonna love this conversation. So let's jump right in. Well, Blake, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm going to throw it straight to you. Why don't you give the audience a little bit of intro to you and so we can learn more about you know your role, your context, what you're thinking about these days. Yeah, thank you, George. I, I'm super happy to be here. I love talking about product and product management and the general shenanigans that go on behind the scenes of building a really great product. Uh, so my name is Blake Reichenbach. I'm a product manager at HubSpot currently. I'm working on our uh, CMS AI platform. Uh, before that, I was on our trust and safety team as a part of product security at HubSpot. So I've, I've worked in product management roles that are strictly internal and infrastructure and backend base uh, and products that are you know, customer facing and value driven products as well. And my, my journey into product management um, it's, it's something that product managers say all the time. So maybe we're a little bit hypocritical, but I, I would say like, it's not your typical, uh, product management journey. I don't come from a technical background or really a business background. My educational background was in, uh, English literature and sociology. And okay. the plan for the longest time was to go work on a PhD in American literature focusing on early American modernism. I could still monologue about it for days. Uh, but, you know, before going to grad school, I needed some cash. I had no savings. And I had been doing freelance writing and content marketing for a while. And so I knew about HubSpot through the HubSpot Academy, where I had taken yeah. just some yeah. like marketing training programs. And I saw, uh, this was about uh, seven years ago now, they were hiring for a remote customer support role. Uh, and I thought, yeah, I could do that for a gap year. I could, you know, be the person on the phone saying, hello, thank you for calling HubSpot support. Can I confirm that your hub ID is blah, 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 blah. Uh, I have been there and done that. So I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> it's truly, I think, the most uh, underappreciated role in SaaS is customer Completely support. I agree. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, as when I was freelancing and saw the HubSpot product through the academy, I thought, you know, that is so cool. I wish I was making more than like beans and rice money and could afford to use that product. And so once I got into the company, I, I really took advantage of what I think was HubSpot's greatest like employee benefit, which is that we have HubSpot accounts we can use uh, and we're encouraged to oh, use yeah. so that we can familiarize ourselves with the platform inside and out. And I, I use that as a, a jumping off point to uh, first teach myself just some basic web dev, uh, you know, very basic languages, HTML, CSS, JavaScript, Hubble, which is our proprietary language at HubSpot. Um, and in doing so, then opened the door to say, well, if I can do this, I can build my own website. So I started building websites and playing around with blogs and dip my toes uh, more deeply into content strategy. Uh, Content strategy led me to SEO, uh, and I was very, very involved in shaping our SEO products. And that's really what broke the seal on product management for me. 
um, and help me fall in love with their craft and throw that like, oh, this is a gap year job idea out the window. How good. Oh my gosh. So what's, what's awesome about that is your journey into that from all the way back from like your writing days, right? From being able to, to craft. I mean, I have to assume that a lot of that gets pulled all the way through, right? Because effectively in product management or in these different roles, whether you're talking to users or you're talking to internal stakeholders or you're trying to shape the product in a better way, is you're telling stories, right? You're trying to shape people's understanding of what we, what we think we ought to do, uh, how we're going to get that done, and then ultimately what we did and why it is valuable to the company, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I love hearing people out in the wild talking about like, oh, you know, humanities degrees, they're so useless. Why are kids going to college studying the humanities? Right, right. But the thing is, I'm not a good product manager in spite of my English degree. I'm a good product yeah. manager because of my English degree. Like yeah. if you can open Faulkner and make sense out of what Faulkner is saying, you can understand what an engineer is saying or what a lawyer is saying or, you know, what a, a business requirements doc is saying and turn that into something really impactful. It's all translation at the end of the day, right? We're, we're all exactly. trying to go, hey, I know what you're saying, but like, can I, can I, let's bring that down to something that we'll all understand. And, uh, you know, I, I totally know what you mean when you're, whether you're talking to an engineer or you're talking to a business person that's like, hey, I know all this knowledge that you can't possibly grasp. And I go, well, but try me, you know, like, let's go there. And then, and then let's bring that down to what the rest of us have to deal with. If that's how you feel like there's a separation between it. So that's ah, fascinating. Okay. So then what does, what does your day-to-day -day look like as you're in this product management role, as you're working with the team, what is, what does it look like? Your, your morning, you get up and it looks like this. Uh, I almost started quoting the lyrics of nine to five by Dolly Parton to you saying, you know, tumble <laughs> out of bed, stumble to the kitchen. Uh, no. So I, uh, important piece of context, I think it's like, I, I work from home. I have for yep. the last seven years. Uh, I'm located in Kentucky, HubSpot's headquartered in the Boston area in Cambridge. Uh, and so for me, my day to day, uh, looks like, um, stepping into this second, I would say like sacred space in my home that is only where product management occurs, only where work occurs. Smart. And because I am in a kind of central platforming team that touches a lot of other products, yeah. uh, my day is really focused on understanding definitions of shared success. So my team can't build in a vacuum. Uh, my team is constantly building either in collaboration with other teams or in support of other teams or getting other teams to support what we do want to build. Um, so for me, I, I'm really focused on breaking down this really big territory that my product teams touch into the smallest pieces possible you know, very similar to like, if you were to say, hey, we have a really big product, let's start with an MVP and then progressively get bigger from there. It's it's a similar approach to how I do stakeholder management is, hey, we have all of these teams, let's get really focused on the ones that we need to support right now, or need yeah. their support right now, and focus on building those relationships, doing the outreach, keeping them updated on where we're at, what our challenges are, and making sure that I, as the team's PM, can tell a really compelling story about how our success is, is interconnected. Yeah, that's so good. How, I'm curious, in, a, in an organization as large and complex and with as many feature sets and as many products that HubSpot has and is managing, and, and when you're touching so many of those environments, how do you manage, this is something that came up recently, a conversation I was having, how do you manage intake flow? So, you know, that, 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 that spot at the beginning where it's to say, I need, I know I need to go to Blake and his team to, you know, get X or think about X, Y, or, or explore this, this space. How do you manage that intake of requests or, you know, add to the top of the pile? What does that look like? I know that's a, a challenge that a lot of our listeners deal with is the intake process. Yeah. You know, I think uh, challenge is a very apt word for it because even when you get 
really experienced at it, it's never easy. <laughs> and, you know, you're, you, you'll constantly find yourself uh, second guessing, like, did I make the right decision and how I approached this? Yeah. But, you know, for me, I think this was especially critical during my time in a security function where, oh, you know, sure. there is no product that is free from compliance concerns or fraud concerns or abuse concerns. And so I think that in that role where there was this constant influx of, of request and, uh, you know, requirements being handed off and people saying, hey, we know that we have to think about risk, but how do we do that? Mm -hmm. um, the way that I found it most helpful to approach those conversations was to first get clarity from product leadership and security leadership on what types of risks were the biggest concern for the business. Yeah. So yeah. what are those aspects? What are those KPIs? What are those goals that like across the board need to be front and center? And using that as my sort of, of North Star for how I approach these conversations so that, you know, if there was a situation where another PM came to me and said, hey, I really think that we need trust and safety to work on this. I could look at that and say, okay, cool. Let's actually talk a little bit about some of the ways we can mitigate that risk without trust and safety's direct involvement. I think there are mm. product opportunities and engineering opportunities here that we can capitalize on because due to XYZ reason, we don't have the bandwidth to tackle that on our end. And I want your product launch to be both successful and safe, right? So having that guardrail, having that leadership buy-in. And for me, especially in security, it was really important to uh, make sure that no wasn't just no. Yes. It was, hey, we're a, a finite number of people with limited resources, just like you're a finite number of people with limited resources. So rather than me saying like, no, we're not going to help you. Let me take on more of a consultative role and talk to you about how I think of risk. And then we can brainstorm some of these like quick wins that you can bake into your product to minimize that risk. I love that. I think the best product managers that I've ever worked with or <clears throat> collaborated with are the ones that are so incredibly outcome focused that they don't feel like, you know, every every tool is a hammer kind of thing, which is to say everything, it can be solved with a line of code or a new feature or a new function that we can add into the product or a new, you know, whatever. Instead, sometimes it's, you know, what if we did the manual thing and just trained our people how to communicate better? What if we just repositioned the offering? What if, you know, whatever. And sometimes that doesn't involve building a new thing or changing the existing product in any way. It is, it's having that consultative conversation. I think that's a really powerful skill, honestly. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think it's, it's one of those things where like talking about it conceptually will get someone part of the way there. But I also like, I'm a, a flow chart junkie. If you're on a Zoom call with me and we're discussing something complicated, there will be a flow chart made. Okay. Uh, and so, you know, I think that like getting people to uh, not only talk about these concerns and have that consultative conversation, but to put something visual to it that they yeah. can like build off of and take back to their teams so that it doesn't become that like game of PM talking to PM. And then when the telephone occurs and it goes from second PM to engineer, like, you know, something gets lost or, or whatever. Like, I think, yeah, having that consultation conversation and then building off of it to create those artifacts and those visual elements uh, that then people could build off of independently was, was huge. Okay. So then what does your team What's your team structure look like today? So whether it's the team that you're directly work on or, or who are you interfacing on a regular basis with um, to do your work? Yeah, so I, I would say that for me, I think about that in terms of like circles of influence. Okay. Uh, and my, you know, immediate circle of influence, my immediate locus is uh, myself, my uh, designer, my UX lead, and uh, my front end and back end uh, tech leads. So really strong relationships within that, you know, uh, product management idea of like the empowered triad uh, yep. between PM, engineering, and UX. I think it's perfect. Uh, okay. 
Yeah. So uh, as a triad, we are are constantly in communication with each other. We have two uh, one hour long syncs every week. Um, and then we also have like a, a Slack channel that's just for us to collaborate and break things down asynchronously. Um, beyond that, I would say like that second layer of, of who I'm working with, who I'm in communication with is uh, my manager and product leadership, uh, mm -hmm. keeping them, you know, informed on the progress we're making, the challenges that we're facing, any concerns that come up throughout the software development lifecycle, uh, as well as the uh, PMs and tech leads for the teams that touch our product. So if we're, you know, leveraging their resources or they're leveraging our resources, I want to make sure that at least like once a month we're touching base and have, you know, uh, an open channel of communication uh, just to be able to say like, you know, here's what's coming or, hey, here's a rough edge that we've hit. What are your thoughts? Is this something we could, you know, work to get fixed in the next couple of weeks? Um, and, and just maintaining those relationships so that they have trust in me and know that I'm doing my best to support their products and that I have their trust as well and know that it, it's reciprocal uh, and that they're also working toward my team's success. You you mentioned something there that it, it I love that you kind of have these rhythms or these kind of disciplines of saying, hey, I've got a, you know these two hour weekly check-ins or I know that I'm trying to check in with that, that kind of outer ring team on X number regular basis. Go further into what are, what are more of those rhythms that um, that you it could be personal rhythms or you know team rhythms. I mean, obviously, product people, whether you're like agile fanatic or you are you know name what other framework, we tend to love our ceremonies. But I I like more thinking about them as these rhythms and disciplines that uh, allow us to kind of keep ourselves in check, right? Are we still doing the work that we said that we were going to do? What are some of those rhythms for you um, or, or your team? Yeah, so I'll, I'll touch on both like some of my personal rhythms and, and the team rhythms as well. Yeah. Uh, so for me, I typically block off the first hour and a half or hour and 45 minutes of my day uh, just to have focused deep work. Good. You know, when I don't have uh, a ton of, of noise and input, the coffee's just hitting the system. I want to be able to sit down and think deeply about the problem space for what my team is working on. and go through uh, the the artifacts and notes and documentation that have accrued over the last day or the last week and make sure that like my team has what they need from me to be unblocked and continue making progress. Um, and of course, what I think is like the most fun part of product management, having that time and that space to uh, think about the long term, think yeah. about what comes next, how our strategy needs to evolve or is evolving organically. Um, and, and, you know, put concerted effort into, uh, anticipating that evolution and the challenges that come with it. So that I think like each day of the work week, that is my first ritual is that hour and a half to hour and 45 of just deep work and focus time. Um, beyond that, getting into some of the, the team rituals, like I mentioned, uh, our triad meets twice a week, uh, for synchronous sessions. Um, those conversations are really focused on, you know, where are we at? What is blocked? What are the friction points? What is the next step? How do we get to the next step? Yeah. Um, and, and creating that alignment and shared understanding of, you know, what is it that we're actually building? What is the problem that we're solving? What, you know, is in scope, out of scope? What needs to be pared down? What needs to be expanded? And so on. Uh, beyond that. I also meet one-on-one -on -one, uh, with each of my triad counterparts during the week as well. Those meetings are much shorter. Uh, they're typically only like 30 minutes. And they're also a bit more informal than the like team triad sync. Um, for me, I really use those one-on-ones to uh, build relationships and trust with my triad counterparts. I think one of the mistakes that some PMs make is like being just i i am purely here for business and uh you know they don't cultivate that sense of oh my product manager respects me i can trust my product manager yeah. uh 
and that that relationship aspect is really important to me. So uh, our our one-on-ones are more informal than the triad sync. We still talk through uh, you know some of the the product concerns and challenges that sure. you know each member of the triad may face, especially since. A, a, an engineer's concerns may be very different from like what a UX person is thinking about week to week, right? Of course, of um, course. And so, yeah, I, I, we have the the triad syncs, the one on ones. Uh, the engineering team also, of course, leads like a stand up, going you know a bit classic agile uh, to get together, talk through like what is currently in flight, what's next, what's blocked. Um, and uh, again, drawing from Agile, we also have uh, retro sessions where, you know, as we get to, uh, and this is something that I, I think has varied with every single product team I've been on, is like, yeah. what is the cadence for a retro? Is it by <laughs> milestone, by project, or are we just going to stand it up like once a month, right? Uh, but regardless of the cadence, that retro is still uh, an important team gathering to bring in the not only the triad but also the full engineering team to be able to just like step back and do some meta analysis on like here's what went really well here's why it went well but also here's what was challenging or confusing and what would make things go even better when we you know start on this next milestone and hopefully if you've spent that time in those one-on-ones to build trust people feel comfortable to actually bring up the the hard stuff right like this is this didn't go as well as we wanted it to, or maybe I expected something that didn't happen. And you can have those open conversations, which I think that's really a really great product team or a really great triad or a really great, you know, cross-functional team. It's when they get to that point that they feel that kind of trust level to go, Hey, I know we're not like beating each other up talking about the, the where it didn't go great, but we still need to talk about it. You know, um, that's, that's really important. I, I, I at least that's what I have found in my experience. Yeah, I I strongly agree. And, you know, I, I think that for me and, and the relationship I have with my team, it's like, even if someone's not comfortable bringing something up in a retro where the whole team is present, I want them to still have that, you know, uh, sense of respect and comfort that they can come and talk to me about it directly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think growing that trust and that relationship with folks is a skill. It's uh, a lot of effort and there are certainly missteps. You know, I once like was in a meeting with a, a senior engineering manager and I was just complaining about how one of our products worked and how, you know, so much of the architecture was just like outdated and like it just it was inefficient and it was poorly designed. And after I had gone through this rant, he was like, yeah, so I built that product. Uh, oh, man, right? I've been in that so, exact situation. There, there are situations where, like, if you don't have that sense of trust, you're just going to put your foot in your mouth and yeah. not have those productive product conversations. Uh, luckily, in the example I just gave, that was someone who I did have a really good relationship sure. with. Yeah. And yeah. he laughed it off and he was like, yeah, I get that. It was good for what was needed at the time, but what's needed now is not what was needed then. And right. so we were able to, like, completely recover from there. Uh, but, you know, it's definitely one of those moments for me that I was just like, okay, having these relationships, not negotiable because that conversation could have been shut down and ended right there. And then we would be back to square one. In your work, where are, if your team were to be here right now, what would they say either about the way you think about your product, the way you think about your customer, the way you think about your work, the way you think about your, your approach, your product management, whatever that is, what's something that they would say Oh, this is where Blake nerds out. This is where he takes it to that that kind of like, oh, just give him a microphone and he'll go go with <laughs> it. What's what's one of those things that you really love to explore and go deep on? So for me, what gets me really excited and where I am often on my soapbox with my team is that aspect of what comes next. How can we front run new technologies? How can we innovate within this problem space and create something that's really exciting, uh, but also really valuable for our customers? And I wish I could give a more 
explicit example of that. Some of what I'm working on, though, is considered like material, non-public information. And I, I don't it, want I to be it. in a Martha Stewart situation. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. I understand. So, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that and say that, like, that, that question of what comes next, how do we innovate? How do we, like, not just build solutions for the surface level problems that our customers face, but like yeah. the underlying core frameworks that lead those problems to exist, that is the area where I can very quickly get derailed uh, and very, you know, very easily just start monologuing and pontificating and uh, trying to win others over. Charts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, totally. <laughs> okay. So well, how do you balance that? Because I think that in, in some ways that's kind of a, that tends to be a very entrepreneurial trait, um, which is to say you can see or you see the potential of a future that others might not be able to see yet, right? And <clears throat> I mean, most employers, myself included, would say I'm always looking for the people that want to, you know, want want to be able to stretch their minds to be able to see that because I'm often finding myself going like, come on, y'all, can't you see that what's around the corner? Can't you see how? You know, we're going to use AI for this, or we're going to use machine learning for this, or we're going to use, you know, some new thing that, you know, spatial, you know, design that nobody's thought about yet or whatever. And not everybody, not everybody's on that wavelength, right? Not everybody's casting that vision forward for what's next. How do you balance the, I guess, how many people might see it as chasing the shiny thing versus finding the value centers for what ought to be next, what's best next? Yeah, you know, I, I think for me, it's a bit of a product management cliche, but genuinely helpful with that question, which is, is stepping back and asking yourself, are you radically focused on your customer? Mm. Because I, especially as someone who works in the AI space, I and I, I, I won't name any specific products, don't want to start any, you know, flame wars okay. or whatever. Uh, but, you know, I've, I've seen these waves of startups and businesses, uh, especially as AI has become as, as mainstream as it is, really chasing shiny new toys as like the end all be all. Yep. Like, we're just going to plug open AIs, APIs into this tool and we're going to become a unicorn. And like the result is you just have a bunch of tools that frankly turn out crap in mass. <laughs> and it's like, oh, true. cool. The customer value that you're creating is mediocre content that might bring in a little bit of web traffic in the short term, but it's very quickly going to like drop in search rankings and very quickly you know, earn you a, a reputation of distrust with your target audience yeah. because yeah. like an AI was cranking out content rather than you. Right. Uh, so for me, especially as someone who uh, does spend so much time daydreaming about what comes next and, you know, what we can do with innovative technologies is I try and consistently root that in the value that it's going to create for our customers. Yeah. And, you know, within HubSpot, we have this idea of like the flywheel, which is mm -hmm. all about aligning your success as a business with the success of your customers. Right. And that I think is is very true, especially in the AI space where we can step back and say, hey, here's this really cool idea that I've been thinking through. But it's not just cool because it uses this technology. It's cool because we have an opportunity to become an integral part of how our customers work, not just how they use HubSpot, but what their job looks like day to day. We yeah. have an opportunity to influence that. We have an opportunity to, again, go beyond some of these surface level challenges that they face and think about the systems that create those challenges and the environment that creates those challenges and, and create for them a tool or a product ecosystem that lets them kind of deconstruct those challenges and rebuild their processes around something that, you know, lets them focus on more impactful work or, you know, invest more time in the things that they love and less time on the tedious parts of their job that they wish they didn't have to do. Sure. And once you get into that language of like, 
here's how this impacts the customer rather than here's what the product and what the feature is, then I think you're on a much more stable footing to get that buy-in and have those conversations with leadership. Because if you start by saying like, here's this really complex product that I want to build with all of these bells and whistles, what I've learned is that when members of product leadership hear that, they hear this is going to be very expensive to build. Yes. Whereas <laughs> if you say, here's how we make our customers love us, and here's something that's going to be like mind blowing and change the way that they work, then they hear like, okay, here's an opportunity to grow MRR. <laughs> so it, it's two sides of the same coin, but very different conversations. How do you get closer to your customer? How do you get closer to understanding what their world is like, what, what matters to them, how, you know, how these new opportunities, new technologies, new futures will affect them? Yeah, so I think one of, one of the really uh, great things about working at HubSpot that I've loved is like we have quite a few channels to get closer to our customers. Yeah. Uh, but at a very yeah. basic level, it's just being willing to get on the phone with your customers <laughs> or get on Zoom with it's your so customers. It's so simple, really. I mean, it's yeah. so yeah. simple. Know. You know, uh, I, I will say, like, to add a little bit more color and detail there, um, partnering with UX research, who, uh, you know, UX researchers are often looking at macro level trends uh, within your customer persona. Getting, you know, getting a foot in the door with them and being able to uh, keep them abreast of what you're working on and what you're hoping to achieve with your product can lead to some really cool insights because then they have that context when they're going into UX research to say, oh, okay, this customer who I'm speaking to now, that reminds me of something Blake told me. Let me pull on that thread a little bit. Right. Uh, so that UX research uh, perspective I also am perhaps biased from my days of starting on the customer support team, but I love looking at customer support data yeah. and looking at trends in where are customers reaching out? What are the questions that they're asking? What are the assumptions they're making about what the product can do or that they think it should do uh, that's causing confusion for them? Uh, you know, I get, getting to know what those pain points are not only within their job, but within how our product fits into their job is, is super helpful context. Um, and so both of those entry points, customer support, UX research, uh, for me, those are often like top of the funnel channels uh, for me to then be able to say, okay, cool. Now as a PM, I can reach out to this user. Uh, I can you know use some internal tools to figure out what other customers are in similar positions to this customer and, you know, just start doing that outreach uh, and, and letting customers know that they're heard and I want to hear. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you, you're, you're lucky in some respects because you're in an organization that you have those channels, right? You have those access, yeah. you have those teams. And I think that's one of the benefits of being in a larger technology organization is some of that infrastructure set up. So you can go, oh, well, I know where that, I know who to ping on that. And, and I, although that being said, I've talked to some other large organizations and they're like, I don't, I know it exists, but I'm not exactly sure how to get to it. Um, so it sounds like that, that feels like it's a more open policy to be able to, uh, to access or ask those questions or look at that data or look at that information where it's not walled off, right? We're all trying to move towards the same thing, which is to make our customers love us, right? Um, it seems like that that culture has has been um, one of transparency to be able to do the right thing. Yeah, you know, any large organization is going to have its challenges, right? Sure, and sure. we're no exception. It yeah. can be a, a pain in in whatever body part you want to name to <laughs> yeah. figure out where things live, who to reach out to about what. Uh, but going back to something I said earlier about building relationships and building trust, mm -hmm. I'm comfortable being a nuisance <laughs> and, <laughs> and reaching out to people to say, hey, I really need to find this information uh, because I've typically built those relationships and yeah. know that when they see my name pop up on Slack, they're not going to be like, oh, this guy. Well, maybe they are, uh, but, you know, <laughs> but they're still exactly. Yeah. There's still enough reciprocity there that even if they roll their eyes when I Slack them, 
uh, they're still willing to, you know, chip in and, and point me in the right direction or help facilitate that process of figuring out like of the million reports that we have, which is the right one. Well, and it sounds to me, I mean, just from the, the short conversation we've had that you're in, you, you make your intent clear, right? That your intent is, is to do what's right by the customer, to do what's right for connecting the, the customer to our flywheel as well. So HubSpot's flywheel of understanding, hey, we need to serve them better. We need to be thinking about to do ways to do this better. And I want to serve my peers. I want to serve my teams. I want to serve the organization. And if you know that's my intent, then when I'm annoying and I keep pinging you about it, and I keep you know pushing on this or I keep you know asking where I can get X, Y, and Z, you know why I'm doing it. It's the person that does this without, it's the person that does without the context. So the person that seems like they're doing it just to, you know, to make their own brand or their own pride uh, be louder. Those are the people that drive you crazy, right? It's the the overconfident yes. uh, cockiness of that versus the humility to say, come on, y'all, aren't we here for this reason? Um, and it, at least my very short conversation with you is that posture is my intent is good, right? Uh, and then hopefully other, other people see that in you. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Okay, so I want to transition a little bit when you're thinking about product management, and it sounds like you know you've you've really been you've been able to really think through a lot of the stuff that a lot of our our listeners and even the people that we've discussed um, have said there's a challenge, right? You 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 have the opportunity to work in cross functional teams, you have the opportunity to get closer to your stakeholders, you have the opportunity to think both long long term and short term, you have the opportunity to say, hey, we how can we work better together, um, and then you you're constantly trying to create uh, centers for trust to work better. When you're talking to other PMs, when you're talking to other peers, what is the thing that you feel like they often get wrong or they often are struggling to understand or to grasp? What's the area that's, you know, it's just like, man, I, I know it can be better. And yet I keep hearing this echo of this, this complaint coming back. What, what do you see as an area that people struggle with? Yeah, you know, I think really it's sort of a continuation of, of what we've been talking about, which one of the things I see all the time, both internally and just like from conversations with product managers at all kinds of companies is like in situations where cross-team collaboration is required, I think some PMs go into those conversations with the mindset of, I'm going to protect my roadmap and I'm going to, you know, not agree to take on anything else. I'm going to push back. And there's almost this mentality of like competitiveness within the organization and internal competition, not nearly as helpful as competing with your competitors, right? Exactly. And, and so that I think is one of those things that PMs struggle with. And to be fair, it, it's, I, I think the kind of intuitive route, because when you set your priorities and you're figuring out like, this is what my team has to do to be successful. Like your job as a PM is to create focus around that and to make sure that your team continues to make progress toward those goals. And so if someone comes to you and there's this risk of, uh-oh, all of this work on prioritization may have to be reworked, I think it's really normal and really natural to have that kind of guarded posture to say, you know, I'm, I'm going to protect my roadmap and I'm going to, you know, create some, some friction here. Um, and I, I think ultimately what that leads to is like prolonged bottlenecking. And it gets us away from that refrain that I've been going back to over and over again, which is like, what ultimately is going to be best for our customers and help our customers be successful in their own roles. And so, you know, for me, I think when I go into those conversations and get the sense that someone just like does not want to be in that conversation or they are like really, uh, almost bristled at the idea of being asked to do something. My first question is to just like step back and ask what's important to them. Like what are their priorities right now? And 
what is it that they're trying to do for their customers? Because I, I think that when you kind of break that seal and start to peel back those layers, it's much easier to figure out where you have common ground and what your common footing is. And, you know, get it, getting to a place where you can say like, cool, if you can scratch my back in this way, with this like mm-hmm. just small engineering change, if one of your engineers can work on this one thing for just like three days, then in return, we can, you know, use XYZ to drive uh, customers toward your product. Or, you know, we could facilitate cross product adoption in this way, right? Getting getting to that place of having common ground and shared goals, uh, aligned incentives. If I can throw out another business buzzword, getting <laughs> sure. to the place where your incentives are aligned can help, you know, just make those conversations a little bit softer uh, and make people a little bit less guarded of the roadmap they had envisioned in their mind versus the roadmap that's really going to be most helpful for our customers. Yeah, it's so good. I think I I say often that product management is is really the art of negotiation, right? And um, and negotiation ultimately is a is a psychological game, right? It's it's understand like you said, it's understanding people's motives, people's intents, people's fears, right? Why are you protecting yourself? Oh, okay, I'm afraid that I'm going to be uh, overcommitted and I'm going to underdeliver, which is going to make me look bad, um, or I'm afraid that. Um, ultimately if I do this, it won't hit that bonus outcome that I was hoping to get because I want to raise or I want, you know, whatever, like they're, each person is motivated by purpose, money, or, or, you know, passion. And, and, and so I think that's ultimately product managers are pulling on all these threads, right. And going, okay, that's fine. Where do I need to negotiate? Understand that's where you're coming from. That's just what matters. And then we have to stay level-headed <laughs> throughout that experience um, because ultimately this is a, it's a marathon, not a sprint, even though we use sprints as a, as a tool. Uh, <laughs> it's a marathon, not a sprint. Unless we're talking agile, then it is a sprint, but it's a sprint within a marathon. Yeah. 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 Totally. There, we're pacing. So we're pacing. Thing. <laughs> okay. I want to land the plane a little bit here. So this has been fantastic. I love, I love your ethos for the way that you think about your work, your teams and serving your customers. You've hinted at it and you may not be able to talk too much about it, but what is something that you're very excited about that, that, that 2024 is going to bring for us? Uh, what's something that you're getting excited about or how much, you know, something you're allowed to share? Yeah. So actually, I think what I'm super excited about right now, um, I can talk about fully because it's like my own side business and not the work that I'm doing at okay. HubSpot. Yeah, good. Don't yeah. get me wrong, uh, in case my employers are listening. I am very excited about what we're working on with the acknowledgement that I can't <laughs> talk I'm about it like in full it. detail. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I, last year, I, I started uh, an online nonfiction bookstore because I, mm-hmm. you know, English degree background, hey, hey, uh, I love to read. I'm constantly recommending books to people. And I thought, you know, maybe maybe I should just like try and monetize this a little bit. If I'm going to yeah. be promoting okay. and sharing books, like, Let's do this. And uh, that's been fantastic. I love it. I love selling books. Every time I get a little notification saying that someone has bought a book, I do a little happy dance and want to go process that order immediately. But one of the things that really uh, became clear to me throughout this process of having a side business, you know, doing something that I'm really passionate about outside Mm. of my day job is that it's as rewarding as it is, it also comes with its own set of challenges. Yeah. You know, being a, a solopreneur or a corporate or whatever like buzzword you want to use to describe it, like it can be isolating because you're the only yeah. person working on it. And you're always going to be running into situations where the skills and experiences that you love and that you want to invest in aren't always like, all of the skills and experiences you need to manage an operation on your own. Um, And you also lack systems of, of accountability uh, and, and structured growth. Um, And so one of the things that I'm in the process of launching right now uh, under the same brand as my bookstore, Howdy Curiosity uh, is an online community platform 
where I'm specifically targeting uh, people who have passion projects and side hustles on top of their full-time job, as well as people who have uh, creative projects on top of their full-time job to have a uh, community that's not like, you know, LinkedIn, Reddit, Facebook, where as soon as you post anything, it's going to be like, hey, by the way, do you want to buy crypto or join my pyramid scheme? Oh my gosh. Uh, right? So, you know, getting away from kind of like spammy self-promotion, getting uh -huh. in with like-minded people who are in the same position and being able to facilitate those conversations about like, what are your priorities? What are you working on? What are you getting stuck? Well, here's what's worked for me. Here's this company that I tried. Turns out they are legit or they're not legit, right? Being able to have those types of, of collaborative conversations and stand-ups and check-ins that you would have in a yep. corporate environment, but in the capacity as a solopreneur. Um, so that's that's what I've, I've been working on in all of my free time. That's what I'm super excited about. Um, and, you know, most mornings I talked about my like hour and 45 minutes of focus time. What precedes that is an hour and 45 minutes of walking on my treadmill at my standing desk and building flowcharts and writing documentation and mapping out like what this community uh, needs to do and needs to be uh, for people who are in that position of really wanting to invest in the things that bring them joy, but lack the support system or the accountability or, you know, the, the connection to resources. Um, especially out in like rural areas like where I live, where there aren't yeah. as many in-person entrepreneurial organizations uh, to be successful and to have a good launch. I love that. And honestly, I think that's actually a really good piece of advice or wisdom for our audience too, because most of the product managers, including the ones on our team, I, I know they have, almost all of them have one, if not two side hustles. And I, I kind of love that, right? Because one is, you know, the daily grind of the work that we do nine to five is um, it can become monotonous. It can become work and it is work and that's okay. I think we oftentimes kind of treat that as if that that's a bad thing or if that's a negative thing. No, that's okay. That's, this is what we do. I also encourage our team to say like, Hey, crema is not your identity. So like, go find your passion, go find your opportunities. I hope that that gives you purpose. I hope that this, you know, this work is fulfilling but I don't want it to be your identity. So if it's, you know, if it is that third place or if it is that side hustle or whatever that is your family or whatever that is like invest in something outside of this, don't make this your everything because inevitably it will let you down one like HubSpot isn't going to be able to fulfill all of your dreams in all of your areas and neither will Crema for my, my team. And ultimately, like, I want them to be able to find that place that goes and scratches the itch. I have to do the same thing. I own the thing that my itch turned into a company. Okay. And I still now have to go, oh, I have to find other itches or other ways to kind of get that entrepreneurial spirit out because this, this company now is a machine, right? That we have to keep feeding and it has to keep running and it has to keep making money and it has to keep paying people and et cetera, et cetera. And so I'm always looking for these things where like, oh, cool. I'm going to go, I used to be a designer by trade. So I'm going to go design a little something on the side. Or I'm going to go pull together a community or launch a podcast because I want to talk to more people and learn more things. And I don't exactly have the excuse to do it inside of Crema. Um, so I, for example, there's a people, a product to your community thing. I love communities by it, by the way. Yeah. Your community thing. We, there is a technically, we don't talk about it too much in the podcast because it's mostly targeted at, our, at this, at our regional area. And we're going to take, start taking it to other, um, other regions, but we do what's called people, a product leadership circle. And it basically is, how can I scrape LinkedIn or the lists that are in this area and find all the chief product officers, head of product, you know, directors of product, maybe senior product managers, et cetera, the people that are dealing with leadership challenges, but with a product mindset. And what I find to your point is actually they find themselves being extremely isolated, extremely siloed, extremely lonely, extremely like... I'm supposed to have all the answers, but I don't exactly know what we're doing. And all we do is about every six to eight weeks, we say, hey, let's go to this little spot downtown. I'll cover the tab. We'll all hang out and we'll unpack one big problem each time. And, and then they can see big problems. And oh, by the way, we're going to keep the group small so that people will actually speak up. So no more than 20 people each time. 
And because any more than that, it becomes a networking event. We don't need more networking events. We want people to actually talk about what's hard about this work. So I think it's, I think it's brilliant. I love that. Um, I love that you have that space for yourself. Um, and I'm, I'm excited. I want you to plug that. And I'm going to do that now, which is uh, you can talk about what your day, your day job is. And of course, give them the credit because they're, they're you know, doing great work as well. We use HubSpot here at Crema. Um, but also, I want to I want to have you plug your your online bookstore and everything else. So I'm going to roll out the red carpet for you. Where can people learn more about you, your company, or what you're working on? Yeah, so the very best place to go to learn more about me, what I'm working on, get involved, uh, is howdycuriosity.com. Uh, I you know I, I adopted that brand because I start pretty much all of my meetings by saying howdy, uh, being. <laughs> often being the only Appalachian in a room full of New Englanders or a Zoom full of New Englanders, more accurately. Uh, I, I, I like to bring that that Southern flair, uh, bring in the howdy. And uh, curiosity for me, I think, is one of those uh, personality traits or attributes that is like non-negotiable. Uh, you know, curiosity, that willingness to ask what if, that willingness uh, and eagerness to acknowledge like, hey, something here could be different. Let's let's play with that. Let's figure out what that may look like. Um, I, I really feel like that's just non-negotiable in, in creating a life and a work environment that is fulfilling and nurturing and that lets you live in a way that's aligned with your values. So I took that love of curiosity and my, my Southern flair, put them together to make Howdy Curiosity. Um, and that's howdycuriosity.com. Uh, if you're just looking for books, you can head to shop.howdycuriosity.com. But uh, either way, I'll say it one more time just for the airtime. Yeah, howdycuriosity.com is where you can find me. I love it. Well, Blake, uh, first off, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for what you do. I mean, I think the reality is, is um, I always want people to feel like they're appreciated for the fact that investing your time and your energy into doing your job is one thing. Coming on a podcast to share your knowledge is a second thing, but then also like being able to say, I want to invite people into that, that conversation through how to curiosity or through other places. That's super cool. So thank you for coming on the podcast today. And thank you for all that you're doing. I really appreciate you. You're awesome. Yeah, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. People of Product is brought to you by Crema, a design consultancy that helps forward-thinking leaders discover, understand, and execute on their greatest opportunities. Learn more at crema.us. Mm -hmm.